Part 2. Bhatimoka, the core of the Vinaya. In the Majjhima Nikaya, Sutta number 6, the Buddha taught the monks, Bhikkhus, dwell consummate in moral conduct, dwell consummate in the Bhatimoka, dwell restrained in accordance with the restraint of the Bhatimoka, consummate in conduct and resort, seeing danger in even the slightest of faults. Train yourselves by undertaking rightly the rules of training. And in a list which occurs several times in the Vinaya and in the Anguttara Nikaya tens, the Buddha gave his reasons for establishing training rules. For the excellence of the Sangha, for the comfort of the Sangha, for the suppression of the evil-minded, for the comfort of the well-mannered monks, for the restraint of the corruptions in the present, for protection against corruptions in the future, for inspiring faith in the faithless, for increasing faith in those that have faith, for the persistence of the true Dhamma, for the furtherance of the Vinaya. The significance given by the Buddha to this formalization of Vinaya may be judged by the vital link he revealed between the Patimoka and the longevity of the teachings, speaking as the latest of a lineage of Buddhas stretching back into the incalculable past. He said that a pattern could be discerned in the relative length of time the teachings of previous Buddhas had survived. While those of Vipassi, Sikhi and Visabhu were relatively short-lived, he said, those of Kakusanda, Gonagamana and Kasapa lasted for a long time. The reasons for the disparity were not only that those of the second group were untiring in giving abundant Dhamma teachings to disciples, but also because the training rules for disciples were indicated and the Patimoka was appointed. The Buddha summarized this observation with a simile. The teachings were preserved by these measures in the same way that flower petals threaded on to a length of cotton twine could be prevented from blowing away in the wind. In Theravada Buddhist cultures, the Sangha has been venerated as the model Buddhist community designed by the Buddha himself and revered for providing moral, intellectual and spiritual leadership to society since its inception. Whereas the Buddhist world has never lacked a core of exemplary and inspiring lay practitioners, it has always been the prevailing view that most of those who have realized the higher fruits of the Buddhist training have done so as monastics. Being seen as the institution in which the vast majority of the most renowned Buddhist scholars and practitioners throughout history have chosen to spend their life, the Sangha retains a great prestige. The Vinaya has always been the defining feature of Sangha life, the visible embodiment of its guiding ideals and the guarantor of its stability and integrity through the ages. In essence, entering the monastic order has meant committing oneself to the study and practice of Dhamma within the framework of the Vinaya. At least, that has been the ideal. It is true that the inseparability of Dhamma and Vinaya most simply of the inner and the outer elements of the Buddha's path to liberation, has always been one of the fundamental tenets of Theravada Buddhism. Nevertheless, in practice, 
The degree to which that relationship has been maintained in monastic communities over the centuries has fluctuated widely. The Bhikkhu Sangha is probably the oldest surviving institution in the world today, and inevitably, golden ages have alternated with periods of decline. In Thailand, it was in the early 20th century, with the appearance of the lineage founded by Lungpu Man, that the principle of Dhamma Vinaya as a single, integrated entity was put back at the very nub of monastic training. And it was this approach to the path of practice that so inspired Lung Po Cha when he paid his respects to Lung Bu Man in early 1948. It was an approach that signalled a radical departure from the prevailing norm in Isan at the time. When Lung Po was growing up, Entering the Sangha in rural northeast Thailand did not usually entail either a commitment to striving for enlightenment or even an adherence to the Vinaya. Monastic life in a village monastery was much more likely to entail embarking on a simple, virtuous existence consisting of a superficial study of the texts combined with various priestly duties. Lung Po became a monk in his local monastery because there was no obvious alternative and for all of its faults, he would have considered that for a person of his interests and aspirations, it was the most obvious place for him to be. It has always been taken for granted in Buddhist cultures that a young man who possesses a strong spiritual vocation and who is free of ties and responsibilities will enter the Sangha. By leaving the household life, he will gain the opportunity to make a wholehearted commitment to the study and practice of the Buddhist teachings. If someone is free of family responsibilities, then why, the argument goes, would they not choose to live in the way that the Buddha himself recommended? Why live as a householder and handicap oneself unnecessarily? Ordination was Luang Po's first declaration of intent on his path to liberation. Unsurprisingly, his aspirations could not be satisfied with life in a village monastery for long. Becoming a Tudong monk at the beginning of 1947 was in many ways his true going forth. It was a departure by which he left behind forever a monastic system in which the Vinaya was only cursorily upheld and formal meditation a peripheral activity at best. Significantly, his wish upon leaving was not only to find a master of meditation, but also one who could instruct him in the Vinaya. Already he saw the two linked together, like the back and palm of his hand. He recognized from the beginning of his quest that without the clear-cut boundaries provided by the Vinaya, sensual desires might well have swept him off the path altogether. Later, when he began his own monastic community, the Vinaya was central to Luang Po's vision. He saw it as playing a vital role on both the communal and the individual levels. Communally, a scrupulous regard for the Vinaya helped to maintain an atmosphere of mutual respect, harmony and camaraderie. On the individual level, the practice of restraint within the boundaries of the Vinaya cultivated the inner virtue of sila, which, together with the training of the heart, samadhi, and wisdom, Banya, constituted the Buddha's path to awakening. The individual dimension was key. 
monks were expected to be able to constantly call training rules to mind in relevant situations, thus systematically over time creating new skillful habits of conduct and speech. Precise and detailed instructions for dealing with the material world grounded monks in the present moment. The recollection of precepts at the moment when the intention to transgress had arisen allowed them to stop, awaken to the significance of their intentions and refrain from unwise actions. It wasn't easy. But for those who persisted, practicing in this way freed their mind from guilt, anxiety and regret and gave them the sense of well-being and self-respect that formed the indispensable foundation for the development of samadhi and banya. In a passage from the Parivara, Discipline is for the sake of restraint. Restraint for the sake of freedom from remorse. Freedom from remorse for the sake of joy. Joy for the sake of rapture. Rapture for the sake of tranquility. Tranquility for the sake of pleasure. Pleasure for the sake of concentration. Concentration for the sake of knowledge and vision of things as they are. Knowledge and vision of things as they are for the sake of disenchantment. Disenchantment for the sake of release. Release for the sake of knowledge and vision of release. Knowledge and vision of release for the sake of final Nibbana through non-clinging. Lung Po believed that as members of the Sangha, it was a monk's duty to give great respect to the practice of Vinaya. Disrespect towards it meant disrespect towards the Buddha himself, its creator. And if a monk treated the Buddha with disrespect, then how could he hope to progress in Dhamma? Lung Po speaks about the Vinaya. Our practice here has its foundation in the Vinaya, together with the ascetic practices and the practice of meditation. Being mindful, being restrained within the various monastic regulations, up to and including the 227 rules in the Patimoka, is of immense value. It makes life simple and peaceful. We don't have to be anxious about how we should behave. We're free of worry and instead have a peaceful life governed by mindfulness. The Vinaya enables us to live together in unity. The community runs smoothly. Outwardly, everyone looks and acts in the same way. The Vinaya and morality are a firm stairway leading to profound levels of concentration and wisdom. By proper use of the Vinaya and the ascetic practices, we make our lives simple and limit our possessions. Here, we have the complete practice of the Buddha, refrain from evil and do good, live simply keeping to basic needs, purify the mind. In other words, be watchful of your mind and body in all postures, sitting, standing, walking or lying down. Know yourself. Remember, the essence of the Vinaya is watching intention, examining the mind. The practitioner must have mindfulness and must be reflective. In your speech and in all your physical actions, touching things, picking them up or whatever, you should first be thoroughly clear about what you are doing and why. Mistakes occur when your mindfulness is weak 
or when you are not paying attention to what you are doing. Although it can feel as if the vinya is harassing you, it has immense benefits. You should know all the training rules. If there are any that you don't know about, then find out from someone who does. A monk who doesn't keep the vinya and who doesn't meditate can't live together with one who does. Their paths will diverge. Study the training rules until you understand them. Reflect on what you've learned and then memorize it. Every now and again, come and pay respects to the teacher and clear up your doubts. He will explain the finer points. Keep studying until you truly understand the Vinaya. Take care of the rules as a gardener takes cares of trees without discriminating between the big and the small. You have to be meticulous with the Vinaya and if you don't practice it in a heartfelt way then you will meet difficulties. Those who are restrained within the bounds of Vinaya feel as if nothing could endanger them but nevertheless they are constantly on their guard. Doubts As a young monk, Lung Po developed a keen interest in the Vinaya. He soon graduated from studying the basic textbooks to the Pubbasika Wanana, a 19th century compendium of dense Sri Lankan commentaries that was considered the main resource for serious Vinaya practitioners. This book, published in 1860, was the work of Pra Amara Pirakita, one of the first generation of Damayut reformer monks. He made copious notes and kept a notebook in his shoulder bag filled with the factors determining transgressions of every rule. In later days, speaking of the energy and dedication he brought to his Vinaya studies, he recalled how he would sometimes pick up his books at six in the evening and not put them down until the following dawn when it was time to prepare for the daily alms round. His understanding of the Vinaya deepened during his wandering years as he began to meet other monks committed to living by the training rules and was able to engage them in discussion about more abstruse passages in the texts. However, on embarking upon a study of Venerable Buddha Gosa's great 5th century work Visuddhi Magga, The Path of Purification, the preeminent commentarial text of Theravada Buddhism, Lungpur experienced a crisis of faith. In poring over the section of book dealing with morality, it seemed to him that the huge number of minor observances listed in the text made the Vinaya, if taken in its entirety, a system too complex to live by. To Lungpur, this was a devastating conclusion. It struck at the very core of his vocation. Years later, he recalled Riley. I thought my head would explode. To Lungpo's mind, devotion to the Buddha's Vinaya followed naturally from devotion to his Dhamma. The two were inseparable. Lungpo wanted to keep every rule and keep every rule perfectly. But now it seemed that no matter how much effort he put forth, however sincere he might be, that was not possible. A simple conviction kept the worst of the doubts at bay. The Buddha, the greatest of teachers, was a pragmatist. 
he would never have prescribed standards of behavior impossible for his disciples to live by. Long Po felt stuck, as if he'd come to a dead end, and yet he believed there was a way out, and he was determined to find it. It was for this reason that when he went to pay respects to Long Bu Mun, the first questions he chose to ask were not about meditation, but about the Vinaya. I said, Venerable Achan, what should I do? I'm new to the practice, and I don't know how to proceed. I have a lot of doubts. I still don't have a firm foundation. He said, what's the problem? Well, while I was trying to find a way forward in the practice, I started to read the path of purification. It made me feel that it's all beyond me that no human being has the capacity to practice in that way. It's just too difficult. It's impossible to be mindful of every single one of those rules. And Lung Bu Man said to me, It's true that there are a lot of observances, but in essence there are few. If you were to try to keep every single training rule mentioned in that book, it would certainly be a difficult task. But actually... The exposition on Sila is just that, an exposition, one that describes the workings of the human mind. Through training your mind to have a wise shame, hiri, and fear of consequences, utappa, you will be naturally possessed of restraint and care with regard to the training rules. As a result, your desires will be reduced and your mindfulness will be stronger, whether standing, walking, sitting or lying down, you'll be intent on maintaining a complete and constant mindfulness. Vigilance will appear in your mind. This approach to the Vinaya was a revelation to Luang Po. It was not, he understood Luang Po Man to be saying, that you were to disregard the training rules in favor of a more general development of awareness, but that mindfulness grounded in a thorough knowledge of the training rules must be based upon the correct attitudes towards them. It was a theme that Luang Po was to emphasize repeatedly in his own teachings, as was Luang Bu Man's injunction. Whatever comes up that you are unsure about, stop. If there's no alertness in your mind, then don't do it. Don't say it. For instance, you wonder, is this an offense or not? As long as you still don't know whether it is or not, then don't act upon that intention. Don't speak with it. Don't transgress. Luang Pu Man advised Luang Po that in times of doubt, it was correct to seek out teachers and listen to what they had to say. Nevertheless, he should bear in mind that the words of others could never truly bring those doubts to an end. Every unskillful action is prompted by an unskillful intention. Unless an inner restraint is developed, doubts about conduct will never go away. The key point was, he said, whether the mind fully accepts the wrongness of wrong actions and the rightness of right actions. Lung Po summarized the teachings that he received from Lung Bu Man as follows. This teaching he gave me was an important one. It's not that you can look after every single training rule. It's enough to look after your mind. 
This did not mean that Luang Po ascribed to the view that practicing mindfulness was a sufficient practice in itself. When informed of the view that a mindful monk would be naturally virtuous, he replied, That's true, but it's not right. It's right, but it's not true. In other words, it was putting the cart before the ox. Whereas it may be true that unshakable mindfulness protects a monk from unskillful intentions, it is also the case that very few monks possess that level of mindfulness. The pressing question is how that protective mindfulness is to be cultivated in the first place. Luang Po held that the recollection of training rules was one of the most important means of cultivating mindfulness laid down by the Buddha himself. In the Anguttara Nikaya 8 Sutta 53, the Buddha gives a list of eight criteria that may be used to decide whether or not a teaching is in harmony with the Dhamma Vinaya. Luang Po had adopted this list in his own studies, and the inspiration he found in the words of Luang Bu Man was strengthened even further with the recognition that they were completely congruent with the eight factors. As I sat there listening, I saw that it agreed with the teaching of the eight criteria for deciding what is truly the teaching of the Buddha. Whatever teaching does not lead to the accumulation of defilements or to the binding to suffering, but leads to detachment from craving, fewness of wishes, contentment, seclusion, putting forth effort, being easy to support, that teaching is the true teaching of the Buddha. Hiri and Uttapa, the two guardians of the world. Hiri and Uttapa were two virtues that Lungpu Man singled out as fundamental to growth in Dhammavinaya. Of the various renderings of these words in English, shame and fear are the most common, while more recent attempts have included conscience and care. The lack of consensus amongst translators points to the difficulty in finding words for these qualities free of Judeo-Christian connotations, alien to their original meaning. Perhaps the distinguishing feature of these two terms is that they involve no idea of a shameful or bad self, only of shameful or bad actions. Hiri and Ottapa may be seen as emotions that arise naturally when unwise actions are seen in their true light. In this book, Hiri is rendered as wise shame and Ottapa as wise fear of consequences. The prefix wise is intended to emphasize that these two virtues are positive emotions that may be cultivated by means of wise consideration, yoniso manasikara. Regularly recollecting one's goals and aspirations, one's status and responsibilities, enables the mind to recognize any actions and speech in conflict with them, resulting in a shrinking away from those actions. The texts compare it to a feather shrinking away from a fire. This is called wise shame. Regularly recollecting the consequences of actions in light of the law of gamma results in a rational fear of unwholesome actions. Wise fear of consequences. Wise shame. Wise fear of consequences. That's all you need. 
when you're about to do something and you're not sure whether it's right or wrong, wise shame arises and you don't do it. It doesn't matter whether, in fact, it is right or wrong. You desist for the time being. Whatever you're uncertain about, don't do it. Don't say it. Check with the teacher first. This is the common ground of all the Vinaya rules. Cultivating wise shame and wise fear of consequences with regard to all bad gamma. It reaches the point that the intention to kill a mosquito feels the same as the thought to kill a human being. If a mosquito bites you and you scratch the itch and unintentionally kill the mosquito, then there's no gamma involved. But its death reminds you to be more mindful in future and not to be heedless. You have to add that point. You look after the vinya at this one point of wise shame and wise fear of consequences and it will encompass every training rule. Just make sure you have wise shame and wise fear of consequences and that's the Dhamma. No more will to transgress. On one of the very rare occasions that Lung Po referred to his own spiritual attainments, he told the Sangha at Wat Pong that after many years of application, his own study of the Vinaya had ended with the realization that the volitions necessary for transgression of training rules were no longer present within him. It was impossible for him to act in an unwholesome manner. He repeated the insight that he had gained from his time with Lung Pu Man. This is an important point. The only true conclusion to the study of Vinaya comes from within. Luang Po's declaration that the intention to transgress was no longer present in his mind makes immediate sense if all the Vinaya rules were concerned with curbing the expression of unwholesome impulses. But a number of training rules prescribe acts that are not inherently immoral. Eating after midday is an obvious example. Why then would a monk's inner purity inevitably result in him scrupulously adhering to training rules not directly related to the arising of greed, hatred and delusion in his mind? It is a point that illuminates the understanding of the Vinaya found in Luang Po and his fellow teachers of the Thai forest tradition. Their view is based upon the fact that the Vinaya has been passed down from the Buddha himself. One who requests entry into the Sangha applies for permission to live his life according to the Buddha's Vinaya. In effect, through faith in the Buddha's wisdom, without picking and choosing, he is promising to respect all of the rules constituting the Vinaya. Transgressing a training rule may then be seen as reneging on a promise and it's this volition to betray a commitment that no longer arises in the enlightened monk's mind. Secondly, in a seminal passage in the suttas, the Sangyutta Nikaya, chapter 16, Sutta 1, the venerable Maha Kassapa declines the Buddha's invitation to relax his ascetic practices in his old age. He explains to the Buddha that he wishes to be a good example to younger monks and to future generations. 
It was this same motivation that guided the great Arahants in their scrupulous adherence to the training rules. The position that precepts can be abandoned after enlightenment is one which has been rejected by all the great masters of the Theravada tradition. They have taken pains to avoid sending the message that one who has attained a certain level of insight is now beyond the training rules. The danger they have seen in the view that rules are only for those that need to keep them is that it would undermine the harmony of the Sangha produced by a common practice of the rules. It might easily lead to corrupt or deluded monks claiming exceptions to group standards of behavior based upon false attainments. With overestimation of attainments having always posed the challenge to meditating communities, a system in which no monk may claim an exemption to the training rules provides safety to all. Those monks who have mistakenly believed themselves to have reached a level of enlightenment are thereby protected from creating bad kamma. Their students are prevented from facilitating such behavior through faith in their teacher and thus creating bad kamma themselves. Lung Po led by example. He sought to set the tone in the monastery by maintaining an impeccable standard of conduct. On every full moon and dark moon day, the Sangha of Wat Bapong gathered together for its most important recurring ritual, the recitation by one of its members of the 227 Patimoka rules. Before entering the Upositor Hall, the monks were required to split into pairs to confess to their partner offences against the Vinaya they might have committed during the previous 15 days. Only thus purified might they attend the recitation. Lung Po, although free of transgressions, would always perform the ritual. After the recitation, he would give an exhortation to the Sangha that would emphasize the role of moral conduct in the path to enlightenment. Caging the Tiger To newly ordained monks at Wat Bapong, the Vinaya could feel like a heavy burden. Some said they felt as if they could scarcely lift a finger without breaking some training rule or other. Monks could feel intimidated by the sheer number of the rules. There seemed to be so many to bear in mind at every moment. Compounding the discomfort caused by the constrictions of their new life, few monks were completely free of odd moments of regret for old habits and pleasures. Lung Po would tell his disciples to be patient, that the discomfort was a natural reaction. Restraining themselves within the boundaries of the vinaya, he said, was like caging a tiger. Initially, the caged tiger rages at the bars, but it gradually gets used to its confinement and accepts the situation. The tiger, he said, was like the defilements. It's not your mind that's suffering. It's the defilements that are agitated. Be patient. On another occasion, he compared defilements and conceited views to an infection in a wound, and the vinya as like an instrument that probes the wound, often painfully, to clean out the foreign matter in order that healing may take place. Wise Use At Wat Bapong, conducting oneself within the boundaries established by the training rules, 
was taught as a means to promote mindfulness and social harmony. But, like any tool, there was always the possibility that it could be used unskillfully and create more harm than good. The biggest danger in emphasizing the Vinaya was that it could be grasped as an end in itself. Being strict could become a fetish and a cause of spiritual pride. Long Po cautioned the monks. The Vinaya will cause you all kinds of distress if you don't know how to use it properly. He would frequently remind the monks that they must use mindfulness and wisdom to protect their practice of the Vinaya from conceit and the craving for identity. He warned them about holding tenaciously to particular interpretations of training rules or of using Vinaya practice as a means to exalt oneself and denigrate others. The Vinaya is a tool to use for your own cultivation. It's not a weapon to be used to criticize or find fault with others. No one can do your practice for you, and neither can you do theirs for them. Just be mindful of your own conduct. He would tell the monks to give 90% of their attention to their own conduct and only 10% to others. Getting angry with monks who were not respecting training rules was to miss the point of the Vinaya altogether. Obsessive doubts and anxiety about transgressions were other traps to avoid. With so many training rules, and with such a large number of them complicated by mitigating and aggravating factors, it was unsurprising that monks often fell prey to doubts about the integrity of their Vinaya practice. If a monk was not diligent in his study, or did not refer doubts to a knowledgeable elder, there was always room for uncertainty. If the monk was of a worrying disposition, he would suffer considerably. Sometimes a craving for purity led to an obsession with perceived impurity. Every now and again, a monk would adopt unrealistically strict interpretations of the Vinaya rules, and drive himself to distraction at his inability to keep them. He might even decide to give up the training altogether, fearful of the bad gamma created by living the monk's life badly. In Luang Po's discourses on the Vinaya, a certain hapless monk called Dham often played a cautionary role. Some monks read the commentarial texts and start thinking they're committing offences every minute of the day. This is a sign of lack of wisdom. I've spoken to you before about Mr. Dham from Bantung, who was a monk here for three years. While he was practicing walking meditation, the thought would come up in his mind that he'd committed an offence. He'd go over to a monk, practicing walking meditation nearby, and ask if he could formally confess the offence. Then he'd go back to his own walking path, walk a few steps more, and then think, Oh no, that's an offence too. He'd spend his whole time going back and forth, confessing offences to this monk and that. It started to drive him crazy. Other monks avoided him. The more he studied the Vinaya, the worse he got. His mind was in turmoil, doubting every possible aspect of the Vinaya. Three years in robes, and he had nothing to show for it, other than a mind full of doubts.
Mr. Dum, crippled by his doubts, eventually left the Sangha. Lung Po would point out that in such cases, disrobing was the predictable result of monks believing in the stories they created from their doubts. Intention Intention is the key determining factor in almost all of the offences listed in the Vinaya. The Pali word is Jetana, also commonly translated as volition and occasionally as urge. But given that in times of stress, awareness of intention is usually impaired, even the most upright monk could be assailed by doubts about his actions after the fact. Luang Po would counsel monks tormented in this way to know doubt as doubt, know it as a conditioned mental state, understand its nature. If the doubt persists, and if the Vinaya teachers agree that there are good grounds for it, then he should confess the offence. In certain cases of criminal neglect, intention is not the decisive factor. A monk who inadvertently drinks alcohol, for instance, is deemed at fault for not paying sufficient attention to the fluid he has been offered before drinking it. A lack of respect may also be decisive. Luang Po once gave an example of a shameless monk who eats something believing the time to be after the 12 o'clock noon limit, only to discover that in fact it's not yet noon. Has he committed an offence? Although he has not committed the offence of eating at the wrong time, Lung Por explained that he is considered to have committed a lesser offence of wrongdoing. The offence lies in losing track of the time, not reflecting thoroughly, being heedless and unrestrained. For the diligent monk, respect for the rules and commitment to the training should always take precedence over comfort and ease. Luang Po gave the example of a monk far from the monastery who is tempted by an offering of semi-raw fish, an isan delicacy, but one which is forbidden by the Vinaya as consuming raw meat or fish is prohibited. You're on Tudong, and during alms round, a donor puts some fish wrapped in leaves in your bowl. It's all you've got to eat with the rice. But when you sit down to eat and open up the wrapping, it turns out that the fish is virtually uncooked, and so you put it aside. You'd rather eat plain rice. You don't dare to transgress. The mind sees the fault. When you reach this level, keeping the vineyard becomes easier. Luang Po related to his disciples how he dealt with his own crisis of faith as a young monk. When I saw the faults in my behavior, in my practice, in my teachers, in everything, I was so upset I almost disrobed. I felt hot. I couldn't sleep. It was really bad gamma. The gamma lay in the doubting speculation. The more I got caught up in the doubts, the more I meditated, the more effort I put forth. I kept working away at whatever point my mind was stuck on. As a result, wisdom arose and changes steadily occurred. Formerly, I hadn't known anything about offences of wrongdoing. I wasn't interested in any of that. But when I really understood Dhamma and held to this way of practice, 
then offences of wrongdoing became to me like expulsion offences. Vinaya Instruction Formal instruction in the Vinaya at Wat Bapong was intensified in the three-month rains retreat. Every evening, after the period of chanting and meditation, Lung Po would read from and comment upon the Pubbasika Wanana. I still take the Pubbasika as my reference in training the monks and novices. I read it out to the Sangha for many years. In those days, I'd sit on the Dhamma seat and teach until at least eleven or twelve o'clock at night, some nights until one or two in the morning. The monks were interested, and it was a training in listening and then taking away what you'd heard to study and reflect upon. If you just listen, I don't think you can understand in depth. After you've listened, then you have to go through the points and analyze them until you understand. The monks and novices may well have been interested in the vinaya, but the late night sessions could be grueling, especially at the end of a long day. In time-hallowed fashion, Luang Po's explanations of the rules would be interspersed with colourful anecdotes, many of them humorous, to keep his audience alert. Many of the monks and novices also had their own copies of the first of the three-volume Vinaya Mukha commentary composed by the Supreme Patriarch Pra Vachiranyana Vorarot in 1913. It provided a much more streamlined presentation of the Vinaya and formed a major element of the Naktam Dhamma exams curriculum. But although the Vinaya Mukha helped to provide a basic grasp of the Vinaya, Lung Por encouraged study of the Pubbasika. On one occasion he advised, The best thing is to have your own copy and to study the Vinaya by yourself in your kuti. When you have some free time, look at the text and keep considering the meaning. Then come and listen to the explanations and reflect on them at length. When you don't understand something, come and ask the teacher and he will give you advice. Lumpur explained that the Vinaya consists of a complex system of conventions to be memorized, contemplated and then applied with mindfulness and wisdom. Proficiency in use of the training rules was to be gained through consistent practice and by learning from experience. The Vinaya did not provide a cut-and-dried instruction manual for a monk's daily life. It's extremely subtle, and you won't be able to draw upon your memory of the rules quickly enough. There's so much detail to learn that it takes a long time of in-depth study with the teacher and steady practice. Conforming to training rules and monastic observances led to a reduction in the time that might otherwise have been consumed by petty matters and to increased efficiency in conducting the affairs of the Sangha. This was especially true when they were accompanied by a strong common dedication to practice. A large number of monks doesn't have to lead to sloppiness and disorder. It's like a millipede. A millipede has lots of legs and looks awkward, as if the legs should get all snarled up. But in fact, because there is a rhythm 
and order to its movements. The millipede walks around without difficulties. It's the same in Buddhism. If you practice like true disciples of the Buddha, it's easy. That means practicing well, practicing directly, practicing in order to be free of suffering, practicing with integrity. Then, if there are hundreds of monks or even thousands, no matter how many there are, it doesn't matter because they all form into one harmonious whole. Recollection of the Vinaya gave them the opportunity to become aware of old habitual reactions and worldly desires and to let them go. In many cases, the role of the Vinaya was to simplify and clarify choices by providing boundaries for action. These boundaries were to stay firm even when the motivations pressing for them to be ignored were wholesome ones. Monks were not taught to repress their compassion in favor of rules and regulations, only that they should learn how to express that compassion within the boundaries provided by the Vinaya. Testing Luang Po's senior disciples were fond of reminiscing about the ways in which he would use the Vinaya rules to test their alertness. While out walking in the middle of the day, for instance, he would often place a folded bathing cloth on his head for protection against the sun. The Vinaya allows a monk to cover his head only if his teacher is already doing so, and seeing Luang Po covering his head, other monks would gratefully follow suit. On some occasions, after a certain time had elapsed, Luang Po would discreetly remove the cloth from his head and after a while look behind to see if the other monks had done likewise. Those who had not would be admonished for daydreaming or at the very least receive one of his famous withering stares. The Practice of the Vinaya the rules of the Patimoka are treated in the Vibhanga in great, sometimes exhaustive detail. The exposition of each rule includes a word-by-word -word analysis and a number of leading cases. Nevertheless, certain grey areas remain for which there can be no unchallengeable interpretations. In certain cases, the spirit rather than the letter of the training rule prevails. For example, the rule prohibiting the consumption of alcohol is extended to cover other intoxicating drugs. In cases where the explanation of a rule contains ambiguous words or phrases or leaves open possible loopholes, monastic groups usually come to their own agreements on correct practice. Luang Po was noted for establishing conventions at Wat Ba Pong aimed at promoting mindfulness rather than convenience. The great standards requires monks to decide on the suitability of any new item not covered in the Vinaya Pitika by deciding whether it is most akin to the things that the Buddha prohibited or to the things that he permitted. Based on this criterion, driving a car, for example, is prohibited, while traveling by plane is permitted. Taking what is not given there are four expulsion offences, parajika, listed in the Patimoka. In brief, these are sexual intercourse, theft, 
taking human life and falsely claiming spiritual attainment. A monk who commits any one of them loses his monkhood the moment he does so and cannot rejoin the Sangha at a later date. The similes given in the Vinaya are as follows. It is just as a man, head cut off, cannot survive without it. A withered leaf, removed from its stem, can never become green. A solid block of stone broken in two cannot be returned to oneness. A sugar palm tree, cut off at the crown, is incapable of further growth. A dedicated monk who begins to suspect that he might have committed an expulsion offence suffers intensely. Am I really still a monk? Is one of the most stressful thoughts that a monk may have to endure. The fourth expulsion offence, which involves lying about one's spiritual attainments, gives monks most grounds for doubts. But the second parajika, taking what is not given, may also keep a monk awake at night. In this rule, the value of the appropriated object affects the severity of the offence. If the object is trifling, worth less than one bada, the text awards a lesser offence, falling short of expulsion. But in today's world, how may the value of one bada be estimated? Although a commentarial text defines a bada by its weight in gold, simply calculating the current value of the same weight of gold, as many monastic communities do, requires ignoring the role gold now plays in the international economic system. Today's market-based value is both inflated and variable. Of the leading cases in the texts in which monks were found guilty of stealing, a bada seems to be quite a small amount of money, but no exact standard can be deduced from the examples. If a monk has taken anything at all that does not belong to him, the gnawing doubt that accompanies his remorse is whether or not the item taken merits expulsion. Longpo dealt with this ambiguity by adopting the position of the Pubbasika, which simply translates the ancient Indian bada as the Thai bhat. They are, in fact, the same word. When the Pubasika was first published in the mid-19th century, a bart could buy a cow, and thus the translation raised the bar for an expulsion offence very high. But by the mid-1950s, a bart had lost much of its value and was worth less and less as time went on. In opting for this convention, Luang Po effectively established a zero-tolerance approach to dishonesty. By doing so, it might be objected that he was distorting the vinaya by abolishing de facto the lesser offence of petty theft. Luang Po's position was that a monk prepared to steal even the most trifling of items had no place in his monastery. Theft of a minor item would lead to expulsion from Wat Pong not necessarily from the Sangha. If a monk were to commit a theft of a small item and be sure in his mind that he had not committed a Parajika offence, he could simply leave the monastery and go elsewhere. He was the owner of his gamma. Luang Po did not insist that his interpretation was the only correct one, but that it was the standard of honesty that he expected his disciples to live by.
as a training of the mind. This interpretation of the rule encouraged monks to give a great deal of care and attention to their dealings with the material world. They knew that a moment of heedlessness might mean hours or days of mental agitation. A monk taking a box of matches from the altar, or even a single match, was expected to inform another monk before doing so. As a secondary benefit, the slight embarrassment of having to inform another of one's smallest acts of consumption did much to nourish the spirit of frugality in the monastery. Offering The fortieth training rule in the confession, Bajitya section of the Patimoka, deals with the way in which a monk may receive food and medicines. It stipulates that he must accept such offerings either directly into his hands, into a vessel, or onto a cloth that he is holding. For the offering to be deemed legitimate, the donor must be within arm's length of the monk. But grey areas remain. What is the correct procedure, for instance, if a monk touches food in the mistaken belief that it has already been offered to another monk? On realizing his error, may he ask a layperson to formally offer the food and make good his error? Or is this food now unallowable? On such matters, the text is silent. At Wat Ba Pong, Luang Po established a regulation that a thoughtless monk who touched a vessel containing unoffered food was forbidden from eating any of its contents. Once, however, the vessel had been properly offered, the rest of the Sangha could partake. If the monk repositioned or merely lifted the vessel from where it had been placed, then no monk could partake of the food. This ruling expressed a common theme. Given an ambiguity in the text, Luang Po would establish a convention that punished heedlessness and promoted mindfulness. As Luang Po became more famous, weekends would often see people from the local town of Warin, from the city of Ubon, and even from other parts of Thailand come to offer food for the Sangha's daily meal. But in the early years of Wat Ba Pong, when the village communities supporting the monastery were poor and Luang Po was still relatively unknown, the diet was austere. Nevertheless, every now and again, a lay donor from the city would arrive with a big pot of curry and other choice items of city food. For the Sangha, it was a treat. On one notorious occasion, after a monk picked up a big pot of curry mistakenly assuming it to have been already offered, Luang Po had the pot sent straight to the novices and nuns. For the monks, it was a practical teaching on the consequences of heedlessness that they did not soon forget. Not relating to women Given that celibacy is one of the defining features of Buddhist monasticism, it is unsurprising that sexual misconduct accounts for some of the most serious transgressions against the monastic code. The Vinaya outlaws every imaginable kind of sexual activity, and the texts go into remarkably candid, even comic detail, in their efforts to clarify the extent of the prohibitions. 
Sexual continence is not seen as an end in itself, however, but as an important element of the training. Through abstaining from all overt expression of sexual desire, monastics give themselves the opportunity to isolate sensual craving as a conditioned mental phenomenon, to recognize its inherent unsatisfactoriness, and to discover the means of freeing themselves from its dominion. Monastic sex scandals make the front page of Thai newspapers. In Buddhist lay communities, nothing excites gossip as readily. Nothing destroys faith in a monastery so easily. At the same time, the good name of the Sangha, being very much tied to its sincere commitment to renunciation of worldly pleasures, nothing enhances the reputation of a monastery as surely as an absence of such scandals. Luang Po was well aware that a mendicant order can only flourish when it commands the goodwill and respect of the lay community, and he went to great lengths to prevent any kind of sexual impropriety from occurring in his monastery. He was remarkably successful. Now, in its seventh decade, Wat Ba Pong has remained untainted by even the rumors of scandal. Luang Po's method was a simple one. As far as possible, he prevented any social contact between junior monks and nuns or laywomen. The separation between monks and nuns at Wat Ba Pong was absolute. They might as well have lived in separate worlds. His logic was that most serious transgressions occur when a monk allows minor transgressions to become habit and to acquire a feeling of normalcy. Gradually, the point at which the monk begins to feel that he is acting inappropriately recedes. The slippery slope leading to overt sexual misconduct opens up before him. Don't allow the more innocent exchanges to take place, Lumpur reasoned, and you cut off the problem at its root. Certainly, Lumpur's most resolute and uncompromising side came to the fore in his attitude towards this area of the training. He felt that in his own personal struggle with sexual desire, it was his devotion to the vinaya that kept him in robes and allowed him the space in which to develop the meditational prowess and insight that allowed him to eventually transcend it. Nothing, Lung Po had observed over the years, could pull a young man out of the monkhood as easily as sexual desire, and for this reason he would allow nothing to unnecessarily provoke it. Talking to young monks, he would echo the Buddha's words to Venerable Ananda, Cut it off right at the start. Don't see them. If it's necessary to see them, then don't talk to them. But what do you do if you have to talk to them? Be very mindful. That is the way to practice towards women. All it needs is for your eyes to meet hers, and that's it. You can be utterly smitten for a month or two months, perhaps until you die. Dying here meant to disrobe. Protecting one's monkhood was considered a life-or-death struggle. The tone of these admonitions was often fierce, but leavened with a wry humor when Luang Po could skewer the most embarrassing thoughts that could pop up in a lustful mind. And when she's gotten up from her seat, and you can even be aching to go over there and touch the seat she's been sitting on, that's what the Buddha called craving. To anyone unfamiliar with the struggles of a monastic life, Luang Po's approach might seem draconian, 
but it was based on an appreciation of how an infirm mind can dwell on the smallest exciting memory. Losing mindfulness in conversation with a young woman could deal a heavy blow to a monk's meditation. She's gone, and you can still see her face. It's a lingering vision. You sit alone with her, and she tells you all about herself. And three years later, you can still hear her words in your ears. In your heart, it's a disaster. Don't socialize with women. It's dangerous. Luang Po himself provided an impeccable example. He would never be alone with a woman under any circumstance. He received guests below his kuti in an area open to the central part of the monastery on three sides. He would only speak to a woman with at least one monk, novice or layman present as a companion. This restraint was not solely due to his respect for the vinya and the wish to be a good example to his students. Although Luang Po's own actions, speech and mind might be beyond reproach, he could not assume the same for every person that came to see him. In his position, it was imperative that he protect himself from giving anyone prejudiced against him the slightest grounds for slander or innuendo. Pawarana One of the policies that distinguished Wat Pong from most other monasteries in Thailand was Luang Po's refusal to sanction any kind of fundraising scheme. He believed that if the Sangha practiced well, any funds genuinely needed by the monastery would appear by themselves in due course. Appealing for donations was both unnecessary and unbecoming. He would often say that he disagreed with the common view that the word bhikkhu was derived from beggar. Monks should never perceive themselves as beggars, he said, because if they do, it will feel natural to make requests. Luang Po would point out that the Vinaya does not allow healthy monks to beg, ask, or even so much as hint for anything save drinking water from anyone other than blood relatives or other lay people who have offered pawarana. An offer of pawarana, literally invitation, occurs when a lay person formally announces to a monastery or an individual monk that he or she wishes to extend an open invitation for requisites. Pawarana is most commonly financial. It might, for example, consist of an offer to pay for a monk's travel or medical costs. Pawarana might also be an offering of skills, such as carpentry, plumbing or cooking. Pawarana may be limited by the donor to a particular service or be open-ended. It may or may not have a time limit. An unlimited invitation, considered the most meritorious type, would usually take the form, I would like to offer you a permanent bawarana for anything you need. Luang Po explained the principle in the following way. You can make the bawarana verbally. Venerable Sir, I offer you an invitation for the four requisites. It can be for life if you want, or for five months, a single month, or just for seven days. Make pawarana for important things like bus or train fares. 
things that lie within the scope of the four requisites, like medicines. But make sure that you only offer pawarana to a suitable monk. Don't make the invitation to a monk who doesn't know anything about the vinaya, or before long, he might ask for so much you find yourself completely broke. You may say to the monk, I and my family would like to offer you pawarana for as long as life lasts. Please feel free to ask for any appropriate requisite at any time. If I am not available, you may make the request to my wife or children. An unlimited invitation like this is a truly excellent means of spiritual enrichment. Without you doing anything at all, the merit, the punya, steadily accumulates. It's a very good thing to do. While the offer of pawarana could render undiscerning households vulnerable to abuse of their generosity, the pawarana protocol also protects householders. In Buddhist cultures such as Thailand, lay Buddhists find it very difficult to refuse a request from a monk, even if they feel uneasy about it. When householders are aware that a monk soliciting donations from them without prior pawarana is in fact breaking a vinaya rule, they can refuse without fear of bad gamma. Indeed, they realize that to concede to the demand would be encouraging the monk in improper behavior. Luang Po strived to be a good example. In the early days of Wat Ba Pong, when conditions in the Wat were Spartan, he refused to take advantage of the allowance to request support from family members. At Wat Ba Pong, monks were not allowed to accept personal pawarana. But sooner or later, most monks left on Tudong or established branch monasteries and he made sure they were prepared. Again and again, he instructed the monks to be circumspect in accepting any kind of pawarana. Even if lay people offer pawarana, you should imagine yourself in their position. They have families to take care of, and making a living is hard. None of you have ever had to bring up a family. Do you know that sometimes people don't have a single penny in the house? Even if they do offer pawarana, you have to look at the cause, the time, and the place. Don't assume that once they've made the offer, the moment the thought comes into your head that you need something, you can go and ask them for it. That's how unnecessary things begin to seem necessary. You become inconsiderate and start following defilement and craving. It's laxness and it will lead to your downfall. Concern for the lay people was not Luang Po's only consideration. Individual Bawarana can create a bond between monk and donor that has detrimental effects on the monk's practice. Wherever you are, be like a forest bull. Don't be a village bull. A forest bull is free. Nobody puts a rope through its nose and leads it about. A village bull is tied to a stake. Wherever you go, don't let lay people support you so well that you get attached to it. Don't let them tie you up like a village bull. Live freely like a forest bull, free to stay or go. Money 
The 18th rule of the Forfeiture Confession, Nisagya Bajitya section of the Patimoka, prohibits monks from accepting gold and silver or any medium of exchange and from assuming ownership over funds held for them. This rule has been a cause of contention for over 2,000 years. Today, the main justification for disregarding it is the argument that life in the modern world means keeping the rule impractical. Support for this position is found in the claim that as the rule only expressly forbids receiving gold and silver, it does not apply to money as we know it today. However, as the definition of gold and silver in the Vinaya text makes clear that the term includes all mediums of exchange, this is a problematic interpretation. Today in Thailand, it is rare to find monks outside of the forest tradition who strictly uphold this training rule. Disregard for it is undoubtedly one of the major causes of corruption throughout Theravada monastic communities. Rivalries and jealousies amongst monks, worldliness and conspicuous consumption may all be laid at its door. Luang Po believed that it was the renunciation of money and of the power and temptation that came with it that guaranteed the integrity and longevity of the Sangha. He found the general disregard of this rule to be shameful. On one occasion, Luang Po was informed that a large sum of money had been discovered in the kuti of a suddenly deceased senior monk in Bangkok. He commented that he could think of no greater disgrace, no greater betrayal of one's monkhood, than that of hoarding a cache of money and having it discovered on one's death. Luang Po's policy with regard to financial offerings was hardline. He steadfastly refused to allow donation boxes in the monastery. He believed that monks should be completely disinterested in financial matters and utterly uninvolved with them. He regarded donation boxes as a subtle request for funds and therefore unethical. Mechi Bunyu remembered, When lay people offered money, there would be a steward present to receive it, so that Luang Po didn't need to be involved. If the steward was going to eat any of it, then he could do so until he vomited. Sometimes the steward wasn't there, and in that case the donors would place the money in the donation book. Luang Po completely ignored it. Sometimes money would disappear from the donation book. He'd never conduct any kind of investigation to try and find out who had taken it, even to ask if anyone had seen anybody suspicious around the kuti. All he would say was that they must have needed it. The refusal to use donation boxes was one aspect of Luang Po's legacy at least that his disciples felt unable to preserve. As Thailand has grown steadily more prosperous over the past 30 years, the number of donations flowing into monasteries has increased proportionally. In response to this, and after a heated debate, the Wat Bapong elders agreed to allow donation boxes in all affiliated monasteries, but with the proviso that they should be as discreet as possible. Lay donors had to be confident that their donations were reaching their intended recipients. During his first few years as a monk in village monasteries, 
Luang Po followed the prevailing custom of receiving and using money, but as he pursued his studies of the Vinaya, he found he could no longer justify this practice to himself. The day he renounced the use of money was one of the turning points in his monastic life. For over two months of the rains retreat, I couldn't make up my mind. Then, one day towards the end of the retreat, I took the money out of the pouch, there was a few hundred baht in it, and decided that the time had come. The moment I made the decision, I felt a sense of ease. The next morning, I took the pouch full of money to a friend, a scholar monk, and tossed it over to him where he was washing his face. Take it, I said, and use it in your studies. Don't worry about me, I've given it up. I made the decision last night. Please be my witness. As long as I live, under no circumstances whatsoever, will I ever touch money again. And I've kept my word. Monks who came to visit Wat Bapong were often inspired by the idea of giving up the use of money, but fearful that they would be unable to survive without it. Their monasteries had no central fund for Sangha use. Luang Po would begin by speaking to them in purely pragmatic terms. Wherever our monks go, we don't have money for bus fares, but people offer us lifts. It's better than carrying money around. If you don't have money, it's not that you won't ever be able to go anywhere. It's even better than before. If you don't have a bus fare, start walking. It won't be long before someone offers you a ride. Having put their minds at rest over the practicality of renouncing the use of money, Luang Por explained that lay Buddhists are inspired by monks who refuse to use money and regularly offer assistance to them. Giving up the use of money would not leave them without basic requisites. It would allow the symbiotic relationship between monastics and laity conceived by the Buddha to assert itself. But the advantage of giving up the use of money went beyond the practical. By renouncing the use of money out of respect for the Buddha's wishes, monks received considerable spiritual gain. If they trained themselves to never ask for anything, always being willing to go without, then they were cultivating cardinal monastic virtues of contentment and fewness of wishes. At one time, a monk who came to stay at Wat Bapong argued with Luang Por about the use of money. He said it was true he held money, but there was no fault involved because he used it without attachment. Luang Por replied to him dryly, If you can eat a crate of salt without getting a salty taste in your mouth, then maybe I'll believe you. The Vinaya Prohibitions regarding the acceptance and use of money, form part of a complex set of rules and protocols established by the Buddha to govern the Sangha's dealings with the laity. The Buddha allowed the appointment of a lay steward to accept monetary donations and for monks to inform the steward of any needs that would require the use of them. The most important feature of the arrangement was that monks could only remain free of transgression against the Vinaya by not assuming power over the money or considering it as belonging to them. 
they were to consider the money as a fund that, at least technically, still belonged to the donor, and they would continue to do so until it was spent. At Wat Ba Pong and other monasteries in Thailand where the rule was scrupulously upheld, donations would consist of the offering of a slip of paper, a pawarana slip, informing a monk or the sangha that the donor had offered a fund for such and such a value of requisites, while the money itself would be deposited with the lay steward. All donations made at Wat Ba Pong went into a central fund. Nobody, including Luang Po himself, had a bank account. The account, in the name of the monastery, was administered by a small committee of lay supporters, with the secretary of the committee keeping Luang Po informed of income and expenditures. When funds were needed for a particular project, Luang Po would inform the secretary, and the committee would arrange the necessary withdrawal from the bank. While many of the rules concerning money, cloth and lodgings are found in the Nisagya Bajitya section of the Batimoka, most of the rules that define the monk's way of life are found in the subsequent section of the Batimoka called Bajitya. These include refraining from taking all life, digging the earth, sitting and speaking alone with women, and eating afternoon. Transgressions of training rules, excepting the most serious category, requiring penance and rehabilitation, Sangadi Sesa, are confessed and purified before the twice-monthly recitation of the Patimoka through the following formula. Friend, I have fallen into an offence of such and such a name. I confess it. Do you see? Yes, I see it. You should restrain yourself in the future. The preceding sections have offered a few mere glimpses of Batimoka training rules and how they were practiced at Wat Ba Pong. A more complete exposition lies beyond the scope of this book. Attention must now be turned to the observances that supplemented them.